Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's is when the, it's the hardest time to stay sober if you're in sobriety. And, right. And so we, we have a lot of listeners who are, the families are in chaos and because they have somebody in the family who's got an addiction problem and obviously breaking all the rules, doing all the bad things, and you know, you know the deal. Um, I sure do. Yeah. So um, I'd like you to kind of give us a synopsis so you can understand. And what the reason why I brought you on is because I know you can help people. And I know there's a lot of people out there who need the help. The families need the help. And, and what you do is a blessing to those people uh, once they get on board and they understand how the procedure works. So I'm going to let you roll with that one. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you. I'll I'll just tell you my story as succinctly as I can. Um, it's a long saga, but for years I was in the broadcast business on the business end, and then I became a professional uh, executive coach. I decided, you know, I wanted to spend more time with my kids and be home, so I was trained as an executive coach. And while I was involved in that training, I found out that two of my sons, um, one was the age of about 20 or, or 21 and the other was about 18, that they were both using drugs and more importantly, they were both using opioids and opiates in particular, t- pills at that time, which were accessible at that time. and. Uh, something that I'd never experienced in my life and was horrified and was totally, totally in the dark about. And one, my first son that uh, this experience happened to was Alex, and Alex went was down in Florida for college, was arrested, and little by little we realized he had an addiction problem. At first, it was sort of me listening, oh, yeah, I just do it once in a while on the weekends, Mom, and it's this and that. And I just believed everything. I had no reason not to, and I just believed everything. And then, really to my surprise, I found out that my older son also had a problem. So I, I started to learn the lessons of what my role was as a family member, and it was a real slow study for me. Um, I jumped on the bandwagon, I got him into treatment, I did all of that, but I really didn't understand fully what it means to be addicted and what that person is going through and how I can really help them rather than continuing to contribute, unwittingly, but contribute to their problems. So I started to educate myself more and more and learn. And again, it was a slow curve because this is 10 years, but they've, they both are coming up on 10 years of of recovery, which I can't believe, to be honest with you. Oh. Um, doesn't, doesn't seem like that. <clears throat> so are they both in their 30s now? They're both. One is 30, one is 33. And I will tell you, it, they were in very bad shape, very bad shape. Differently, different experiences, but as bad as it gets. And they are both amazing young men now. So I tell you that not to brag, although I am so proud, 
but to tell you that it's so possible. And a lot of it has to do with how the family gets on board. So I became fascinated with the whole thing, and I became interested in it and started making, you know, having relationships with people who were in the field and, and really understood how, started to understand what I had to do differently and what they were really going through. That it wasn't a, oh, my God, he promised me he'd stop and he didn't, he just lied. I mean, it is, if, if anybody in the audience has, you know, personally gone through it, I haven't, but I know, from now what I know, it is an unbearable situation for an addict. And it is not, it's nothing to do with willpower. It's nothing to do with values. It's just, it, any one of us could be in the same chaotic situation if we were addicted. So I decided, as I became more interested, my my newfound business of, of um, executive coaching really lost its luster. I really had no more interest in contributing to the to the world of commerce or the world of business anymore. And I switched gears completely, and I started to learn about becoming a family recovery coach. And in order to do that, I first had to get some training in addiction and actually was certified as a recovery coach, but never really wanted to work with the person who was suffering from addictive behavior, wanted to work with the families, particularly the parents, because that's the role that I understood. And, you know, for those of you out there that have gone through this with your families, we all have that feeling that nobody really understands unless you can throw it. And, you know, I find that, I find that really to be true. Um, so I started getting on gear to become a family recovery coach, and I then was educated um Tony, you mentioned the bomb, which is um, an amazing group. Based out, the founder is Bev Buncher, and she was my trainer. I went to, I got to know her, and she created um, a, a pretty extensive education program, all online, um, and also a coaching school. So I went to her school. I started helping her with the business, and I teach um, a class for her, uh, for her families every week. And I also started my own company, Costa Family Recovery, um, where it's just, you know, I, I often team up with the bomb in terms of I have my own uh, <clears throat> clients, my own coaching clients, but I also encourage them and help them get through that education program. So let's be clear um, on the bomb for people that don't know what that word means. It stands for be a loving mirror. Is that correct? It does. And, and that can be confusing a little for people in the beginning. But when you think about it, it's really, a, and again, Bev created that. And it, it's, it's really brilliant. When you think about it, you think bomb, be a loving mirror. What does that mean? But we learn a process of communicating with our loved ones so that they can 
see that so that things are a little bit more, well, a lot more clear to them about what their behavior is. We learn to do it in a very loving way. So if you think about a mirror, it's the most reflective, true item that you can imagine. I mean, your hair, if your hair's a mess, the mirror's going to tell you your hair's a mess. Uh, yeah, I mean, I look in you the know? mirror in the morning and I'm wondering who the you old know, guy is in my clothes. We all know what the mirror does. We all know the mirror. So if you think of learning to become the reflection for your loved one, in other words, learning to communicate with them everything that you're seeing, that you're noticing, without judgment, without criticism, without anger, but in a loving way, the point being they have a chance finally to hear you. And because all of the chaos that we go through as families dealing with addiction, usually not always, I know in my experience it was lots of yelling, lots of fighting, lots of, you know, badgering, lots of nagging, um, you know, want to tear your hair out. It's, it's a horrible situation. Dealing with an addict's behavior as someone who loves that person is an unbearable situation. So the, the focus of that program is education, but all aspects, as well as learning what we call the bomb method of communication which we really have learned that we contribute. When doing it, we can really contribute to recovery versus using. So and, what, um, what you're saying is, so this, this child who's still probably living at home and he's 21 or she's 21 and she's just stolen your credit card and, and spent $200 on it, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be calm and we're going to be loving and all that. I mean, that seems kind of hard to imagine compared to what I it, it verified. Is, you know what? You're absolutely right. It is. And I wish I could tell you that it works. The louder you scream, the more you yell, the more you, you know, become disgusted that that works. It just works in the opposite. So the, the reason for all of this is really because we've learned, and it's fairly scientific, that the human addicted brain, it's like a hijacked brain. And when you as a family member say to that person, you know, I can't believe you did this, you did this to us, you ruined our lives, you know, this is that, the brain sort of signals to the addict, okay, let's go use, she's crazy, Let's get out of here. She doesn't know what she's talking about. They'll do anything because that brain thinks, believes it's in a survival mode. That if they don't get the drug and they don't get to use the drug, they will die. And so consequently, all, everything's, all, you know, all bets are off. They're going to they're gonna do that, that person that you now see that you don't know, your loved one. It's pretty much going to do whatever they need to do to keep to perpetuate that. So when we change, and all of you have probably heard, you know, if that 
we need to change in order to start to see change. So when we change our method of conversation and we use a better tone and kinder words and um, stop the criticism, but more state back, you know, really saying, honey, I want to have a conversation with you. There's some things that concern me. X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's much, there's more training involved, certainly, than that. But in order to be able to do that, because I know when I first learned about this, I said, there's no way I can be nice like that. I just can't. But it comes from inside. So we start by doing a lot of self-care work, meditating, breathing exercises, um, exercising, whatever we can do to learn to to be a little bit more at peace despite the situation. So that's what so, you do for yourself. So we do it for ourselves. Um, it's called our inner work. And then we're more prepared to have a conversation with our loved one that will allow them to hear us. And it doesn't happen like in the movies where you sit down and you have this wonderful conversation with your loved one and they turn around and go, gee, mom, you're absolutely right. Let me sign up right now for the, for the treatment center. It doesn't work that way. But eventually it starts to register where they are not being shamed by us, that we are compassionate. We get it. It's not that we become a doormat, believe me, because there's a whole lot of anti-enabling that comes through this and boundary setting and all of it. Um, You know, it's not just, oh, honey, do whatever you want at all. But the conversation about it and what we see and what we're reflecting back to our loved ones is done in a very compassionate way. But with... but with strict boundaries, though, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. no more enabling, none of, you know, hey. And, and it, we learn how to have that conversation. In other words, if you say, you know, if your loved one says to you, and this, this is relative to enabling, and we've all been there, your loved one says, Mom, I need 20 bucks. And, you, and if you're, na- let's say this, your next door neighbor asks you for 20 bucks. And you said to your next door neighbor, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have that right now. The neighbor would say, okay, fine, never come back for the money. If you say to an addict, I don't have it right now, that's like saying, oh, okay, you don't have it right now, but you might have it in an hour, you might have it tomorrow. It's like saying yes. So some of us are so afraid of our loved ones because of all of the trauma that we actually tiptoe around saying no. You know, gee, I told my daughter she could have the car back in March, but she's still using, and I don't want to go back on my word, but I just, you know, I don't think you're entitled to do whatever you want and lay down the law and say, honey, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a car until you have a certain amount of sobriety. Or, honey... I'm not giving you $20. I'm not making money available. The only thing I'm making available is treatment. And 
it's very black and white. You know, it's not said sarcastically. It's said, it's said kindly, but it's very emphatic, so there's no confusion. Okay, so now you're doing this in the beginning. You've got this information, and your child is using. At what point do you say, time to go to, uh, to a recovery center? How do, when does well, that fit you know, in that, here? That's a great question, and it's, and it's really hard. Um, and I tend to lean toward the, um, I, tend, I, I tend, I don't know if it's called being more strict, but I look at this as a life and death situation. And not just because of overdose, but we know overdose is prevalent, but your loved one is in harm's way in so many ways. I mean, I'm still hearing the stories that my kids tell me. Oh, yeah, we were, my, my son apparently was getting drugs from some gang in Florida, and there, there were weapons and this and that. I mean, the kid was 19 years old. What could have happened besides the problems that drugs cause? It's the environment that they live in. So there's so many, so much danger that, you know, first you try to get get your loved one to reason and see that they need help. But if it goes on too long, then I'm really an advocate of, you know, getting help, whether it be calling 911, whether it be, um, you know, involving the police, involving the um the EMTs involving hospitals, just to get the ball rolling. Um, and and the other piece of that is, you know, we we listen to our children or our, or our spouses or whoever that person is a little bit too much. And what one of the biggest lessons I learned first, first of all, was to stop listening to my kid who was extreme, like all of our addicted family members, very manipulative, very convincing. Oh, I don't need to be here anymore. I'm fine. I can go back to school. I'm great. Terrific. You want to believe it. Um, You let them make decisions. Their brain is so broken in the first year, at least, of recovery that they're really not able to make sound decisions. So what I started to do is say, you know, I, I, it was the first time I ever said no to my son. It was after, you know, third stint in the treatment center. I finally said, you know what, Alex, I'm not, I truly believe that you need a lot more healing before you're able to make decisions that are going to help your life. And I'm too close to it as your mother, and I love you too much. I'm going to defer to the professionals. And I'm going to do what they tell me to do. And once I took it off of myself and also acknowledged that, you know what, I basically, and and it wasn't a disrespectful thing, but I basically can't rely on, you can't really rely on your judgment right now. So let's see what they have to say. So that when it came to, you know, getting somebody into treatment or what kind of treatment or more importantly, how long they need to stay or where they need to go next. 
it was a lot easier once that dynamic was taken away. You know, well, my son doesn't want to go to sober living. He says the food's terrible and everybody uses and the guy that runs it is a jerk. You know, it's, it's, we, we let them run the show and it just has a bad ending. Right. <clears throat> I've heard that, that line at least three or four times. Right. Like the food's bad and everybody's using. Everybody's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I have to be in by nine o'clock or something. There's curfew. Right. Uh, so, Lisa, how does somebody get a hold of you if they want to, uh, well, if they're looking you, for a coach, were, what's, the, what's the best process okay, for them? Okay, let me give you my phone number, and I'm happy to do that. It's the easiest way to reach me, and I'll give you my email as well. So my my name is Lisa Costa, and um, my company is Costa Family Recovery, and the website is costafamilyrecovery.com. My email is Lisa at Costa Family Recovery, and my phone number is 617-548-7139. It's better to reach me by email or phone. You can go on my website, and there are some articles that you might find interesting on that. And just look through the website, which gives you a little more detail into my own story and my family's story. But there's this magic button on the website, and I haven't been getting. It says sign up for a complimentary coaching session, which I will make available if someone wants to call me. Before they decide to hire me, I'm happy to do a complimentary session to see if, you know, if it makes sense for them. But don't rely on that button on my website. That's all I'm saying. Use my phone number or my email address. All right. And if you have a question for Lisa right now, you can call 781-834-9639. Or you can go on the WMEX Facebook page and you can... Put in a question, and Ben will read it to us, and then we'll have Lisa respond. Um, again, 781-834-9639. So, Lisa, here's the thing that I know that happens because I lived it. Um, what if you get a husband and wife now and mm-hmm. totally disagree with the, the approach to the uh, – I've, I've been a bereavement facilitator, and – and some of the stories I hear, usually the husband wants to throw the kid out and and the wife wants to protect them. Um, and then we're talking about opioid use at the moment, not alcohol. Right. Okay. Right. So, so um, and if you're coaching this family, uh, you must get this conflict quite a bit. I mean, you it's got to be an issue. I do get the conflict, but I believe, believe it or not, I do coach several Parent, you know, mothers and fathers who are pretty much on the same page, or when they at least start to coach with me, they become more and more on the same page. Um, not because I'm telling them what to do, but I'm kind of explaining how things, you know, how things really are in the mind of, of their child, the loved one. Um, but you can still have, you know, I, it, there are couples that don't agree. And it, it's very interesting because sometimes there needs to be some real psychological work done underneath. 
You know, some people enable and they can't help it. And there's an underlying fear of not being loved or not being liked or being abandoned or whatever. I mean, it's amazing what our own psyche and our own background, how it affects how we handle these situations. Um, So when I find that there is a parent who just won't subscribe, and a lot of times you find that in divorced parents, too, because one doesn't want to be the bad guy, and, you know, the the addict will immediately pick the easiest parent. You know, the, the most the more enabling parent will be the favorite parent. And sometimes that just has to be brought up to people and say, you know, why do you think your daughter keeps going and asking you and she won't ask her mother? Because you are her resource. You know, you're not her, it's not about who loves who most. It's about how can I most easily get my drug and do my drug. And sometimes when you put it in those terms and you explain to them that they are being a vehicle, in other words, they're contributing to the using, it, it a light bulb can go off oftentimes. And they say, oh, okay, so it's not that she likes me better. You oh, know, yeah. I believed for many years my kids would never like me. Like, they, we just wouldn't have a relationship. I just, you know... I, I almost had to come to terms with that, and fortunately, it wasn't the case or anywhere near the case. But you know, you finally—it's—it's not—it's not a—it's not, not a popularity contest at all with families. It turned out their father was a softie. Is that what you're saying? Um. Well, no, he got it, but it had to be done to him. In other words, when they stole from me, we were fairly recently separated when this came down. So um, I think it was an advantage to my kids because their father wasn't around as much, you know, more to get away with. Um, And I probably indulged them more because I felt badly for them. Um, Lots of dynamics play out in in families. Um, But once they you know, once like they stole from him, or or he was faced with the you know repercussions of addiction, he was on he was on board. He really was on board. Um, but he always would defer to me because I was starting to get my information under my belt, so I could talk to him and say, "This is what we need to do. We need to do this, X, Y, and Z." So. He at least let me kind of spearhead the whole recovery. Yeah. Fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for those who are new to this, uh, when we talk about opioids, we're talking about Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Vicodin, Percocets, uh, and methadone is a form of, a, of an opioid. And um, I've always stated to people, you know, the person, the, the user doesn't abuse the drug. The drug abuses the user. And as you said earlier, it's a chemical thing. And and really, mm-hmm. people need to understand that to to stop doing opioids is one of the most difficult things to do in the world today. I mean, it, to go, you can't really can't go cold turkey correctly. Otherwise, you're risking your life because right. because you're going to be dope sick. And um, 
some people are dope sick for a long time. I knew somebody who was taking an outrageous amount of opioids. He was doing between three and 400 milligrams a day. The, the average person would die on that much. But, right. he, but he, worked right. his, he worked his way up to it. And he was, my son, my, one of my sons never tried heroin. He got clean right before that would have happened or was in that league. Oh. It's so amazing. Well, this guy I was thinking about, he got put in, he got arrested and they put him in jail and yeah. they put him in solitary. And he was stope sick for almost 40 days before, oh. before he came because he had so much opioids. It's amazing yeah. he lived. It's amazing yes, that they, it is. It is. Um, he lost a hundred pounds, by the way, during that oh. period of time. But um, uh, is it? That's that's how hard it is. I mean, you, I've I've seen people who start and who would go a day without getting their fix, and the the stress and the yeah. their, the look on their face and everything. They're so yeah. desperate, you know. And and it's, it's true. You're absolutely right. It's absolute desperation that those of us that haven't experienced it cannot even imagine. Yeah, it's there's nothing like it for a person who's not yeah. doesn't have that addiction period going on. Um, yeah. Now, let's, what would you do differently if somebody's got an alcohol problem and do you treat anybody with alcohol issues? Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. How, do, how, do you, how do you separate, because in my personal opinion, Yep. Um, and alcohol has long-term effects where opioids, if they, if they get a pill that's, that's laced with fentanyl, they could die instantly. And chances Absolutely. of them dying instantly with alcohol is going to come when they drive into a tree at 100 miles an hour. But it's not right. going to come because you're drinking a fifth of whiskey or something, you know. Um, how, do, how do you treat the, the families differently and how do you treat the addict differently? Well, there's a huge sense of urgency, in my opinion, with anything related to whether any, any opioid, including heroin, including fentanyl, whether it's, you know, natural or man-made or whatever. And, you know, the, the addict doesn't have the urgency at all. They'll tell us, I had someone the other day who called me and, you know, my son is addicted to fentanyl. And I said, well, in that case, then I would have, I, I'd get the EMTs on board immediately and get him put in, into a, you know, a bed at a hospital immediately and sent to detox because it's, it's deadly. And, you know, their right. answer was, well, he says he doesn't do enough to really make that happen. How does he know? See, address, you know, that's what I always say. How do I you mean, know? I mean, every addict says that. Are every you a pharmacist or a, a drug? Right, right. You know? I mean, you know, it's just craziness. And sometimes parents buy into it because we want to, because we're in denial, because the fear that drives the denial is so big. Who wants to hear that? Who wants to not believe that? And so those situations, I absolutely believe, have to be handled Immediately. Immediately, it's death. I mean, that's life and death. The problem with alcohol is a very different process, in my opinion, because you have a young person who's 28 years old, and they're having real problems with alcohol, and their behavior is, you know, intolerable. They've been arrested. 
They've had car accidents. They've had DUIs. They've lost relationships. They've lost jobs. It's terrible, and eventually it's deadly. I mean, there's no question. People do die from alcohol. But the problem with the alcoholic versus the heroin addict, let's say, is the alcoholic always seems to want to believe they'll get clean or they'll experience recovery or go to some meetings or however they do it, and then they, unless they're treated, and really treated in, in a treatment center, they start to believe, well, I'm going to be drink like a normal person. Well, there's no such thing of a heroin addict saying, well, I'm going to use heroin like a normal person. Yeah. So the heroin addict thing is like there's no, mo- you're, either, you're either recovered or you're not. Whereas with alcohol, sometimes it takes years for somebody to really come to the realization that, you know what, I can't drink. It's poison to my body. It's an allergic situation. Whatever it is, I can't drink. And therefore, but usually they don't set out believing that. They always think, well, you know, I'll I'll give it up for January, and then I'm going to go back slowly to one drink a week, and then I'm going to go to the gym every day, but I'll have my drinks on the weekends, and then it becomes progressive. Yeah, it's, so, it's, a, it's amazing how many alcoholics go to the gym and think that <laughs> they think they can work it off or something. I, I, right. I, 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 do, I have an employee who works for me, and he says, well, I only drink at night. I'm like, well, <laughs> and, 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 and what night of the week do you drink? And he's, well, I always have a drink with my meal, of course, you know, and I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, every day. You know, and he, and he right. still does not believe that he is well, an alcoholic. You know, and I'm like, in, it depends on the individual. I always look at the behavior, like what's happening in the behavior. If someone says they want to have one glass of wine at night and they're fine and they eat dinner and they're pleasant and they're family, you know what? Some That's okay. Do that. Other people can't stop and become belligerent or become, you know, difficult to be around that's when we you know then then it really becomes a problem but well, I, I, um, i've explained to this gentleman that the fact that you spend 30 to 40 dollars a night on alcohol in a bar room or in a restaurant i said that yeah. that's a that's definitely a, a tall sign that you're telling me something you know uh, well the other thing is tony what we have to in most cases and I'm a former cigarette smoker, so I can say I know firsthand what this is. We don't tell the truth about what we use. We don't just tell the truth, not tell the truth to others, but we don't tell the truth to ourselves. And I've had doctors say to me, well, how much did you smoke? And I said, I really can't tell you because I never told was honest with myself. I didn't sit down and count the cigarettes. I just told myself for years it was a half a pack a day. When I know it was a lot more than that. Yeah. So alcohol, people who drink do the same. There's a lot of shame associated. So you're never going to get, usually won't get a straight answer when you ask anybody who has an addiction issue, you know, well, how much do you drink or how much do you smoke or, you know, how... How many drugs do you do? Or 
So when families come to me and say, I just had somebody tonight call me, somebody that I've known for a long time. She said, I need to find a treatment center for my son. He smokes pot. And I don't know if they're treatment centers for pot. And my first question to that mother, when I talk to that person, when I have a chance to sit down and talk to her, is how do you know he smokes pot? Well, I know, you know, he, he's open about it. You can tell he smokes every day. And then I'm going to say, and how sure are you that his, that's his only drug? And the answer will be, well, he's very open with us about his pot smoking, and he says that's the only drug he does. He did say once or twice he tried cocaine, but he doesn't like it, and he only smokes pot. So that might be true, but it very well may not be. And a lot of times we really don't know what's going on um, because we don't, we can't rely on our loved ones for the truth. It's not that they're morally bad people. It's that addiction causes them to lie to save faith. Well, let's think about, let's talk about something positive. How, you said Alex is what, 33 now? Alex is 30. Chris is 33. Alex is a chief marketing officer for a group of treatment centers. He lives in Florida. They have a couple of treatment centers in Florida, one in Long Island, one in New Jersey. He's doing really well. He's getting married in April. He, they have the best life. He and his fiance have the best life they've ever seen. I mean, they're going on a honeymoon in the Amalfi Coast in Italy, and they're living the life, and he's a great human being. Great person. Just compassionate and, and how long has he been sober 10 years it'll be 10 years in april and my other son will be 10 years in february so they, and he's very entrepreneurial doing really well also has a great partner girlfriend um you know <laughs> i can't even tell you how grateful i am it, it's well, just and and that's why I do the work I do, because, I, first of all, I really enjoy, I really love it. But I made so many mistakes that could have been really had a very different outcome that I just want people to get on the track faster than I did. Well, that, um, that's good. I mean, we call our show the Courage to Hope. And, yeah. And so if they have the courage and to hope, I mean... This is the results. I mean, Alex and Chris could be living yeah. examples that that it can happen. You know, it's a yeah. they, they know that they're always an addict, but they know they live day to day, but they're right. but they're able to live a normal, healthy life, and that's that's that, oh, that's absolutely. what the goal is that we want everybody that's addicted to get yeah. off whatever they're addicted to and and to move on and and look at the possibilities of what life could be right. like. I mean. I, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. It was, I call them the nightmare years. I mean, they were. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I, But I can now say that it was a blessing for our family in so many ways. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it, it has been a blessing um, for them, for the way they live their lives. For me and how I live my life, we've all become, I think, very humbled from it. And our priorities are a little bit different. 
and uh, really understand the joy that comes with helping people, as I'm sure you do, Tony. Well, my son didn't make it, so um, I know. And uh, but look <clears throat> at what you've done. Well, I went twenty twenty years with him, going in and out of rehabs and so forth, yeah. and and my goal now is to make sure that his life he didn't die in vain. And he so, certainly didn't. That's for sure. So we're we're trying to do everything we can to get the word out to other to parents and so forth. And you know, there's a lot of things we still have yet to accomplish. Uh, the biggest thing, <clears throat> of course, is lack of prescriptions, which means lack of opioids on the street or every, yeah. anywhere. Um, and we got to curtail this situation with the um, with the fentanyl that's coming into the country. Oh, that's <clears throat> just. It's awful. Yeah, the the, fent- really the fentanyl is here and so forth, and we got to... Um, right. Now, I was going to tell you, last week we had a guest that um, she told us that she was so bad, so down and out, that she was shooting heroin, and she was living under a bridge, and, the the you know, when people shoot heroin, they put a little water in the spoon and everything, and she was using mud puddle water and yeah. injecting it into her system. And she said that's that that's how down and out she was, and and now she's running two companies, and she's incredibly successful. Wow! Incredibly, everything has come around, and um, you know she had a lot of confidence in herself. Once she got sober, everything changed, and and it can happen, and that's what we want people to know. It can happen, and um, I, I just hope the 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 people have courage to call you, and say, look, you know. It's not going to be easy, but it can happen. We can make this work. Absolutely. And, and so would you like to give out your phone numbers again? Uh, Absolutely. My phone number is 617-548-7139. My email is lisa at costafamilyrecovery.com. And my website is Cost of Family Recovery. And we talked about the bomb program, which I do offer through my work. Um, and I make that available for my, for my clients because it's an amazing education program. Okay. Now, when, going back to the bomb for a second, mm-hmm. um, I read the book. In fact, I wrote the yep. forward in the book. I uh, know you did. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I found that this, this the, I'm trying to remember how it went, but the steps that Bar- Be- Beverly put into the book. Um, right, seven steps. That's what I teach. Right. And how long does it take for an, a, a parent that's in the program for it to click? I mean, how many sessions will it take before they're going to be? You know, it, they, it so depends. It depends on the individual, how much work they put into it how open they are, um, how long they've been dealing with it. Um, you know, some parents have been to Allen already, so they have kind of a jump start on it, even though the program is is a, a lot more diverse than Allen. It includes Allen, but every other um, imaginable, you know, type of, of recovery and, and, um, and treatment. Um, it, it's really hard to say. The class that I teach is the seven-step 
to bomb. And what that is, it's called the, it's really like the practitioner course. So when you, when you take the bomb program and you subscribe to the bomb program for a year, you have the first part, which is the 12 principles. That's the education piece. And there's a lot to that. So there's, 12 principles, the education, and they're all recordings, but each one has many different interviews attached to it with professionals, with people in recovery. So it's very, very extensive. And then um, once you get your feet wet in that, they take my course, which is an eight-week course that really step-by-step teaches you how to communicate effectively with your loved one so that you really do contribute to their recovery. Um, So, And I'm happy to go over it with with anybody that calls. Sorry, I did remember you you did say you do one consultation for free. I do. You do. And how long is a consultation for? Usually it's, you know, it's about a half hour. My, um, if somebody ends up hiring me, I work in a lot of different ways, but it's usually, you know, like a 12-week commitment. And I do sessions up to 90 minutes because sometimes people aren't finished in an hour. You know how if you've ever been to a therapist, well, our time's up. I really try not to do that. So especially in, in the beginning in our relationship, they need more time. The other thing that I offer is when when I'm hired as a coach, I'm available pretty much all the time in the sense that if there's a crisis, because this is what I want to avoid. Let's say I meet with somebody on Wednesday and things are going well and we have a good session. And then Friday night, their loved one has a relapse or does something, you know, stupid or there's a, there's a crisis or they find out that something happened that they didn't expect or whatever, I don't want them to wait till the following Wednesday. So I want them to text me at that point and okay. say I really need need to talk. So I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to the fact that there's different stages that we go through as parents. And, you know, sometimes in the beginning when they're first in the thick of it, they need more, they need really somebody to be able to reach out to when they need them. So I try to take that into consideration. And I've never had anybody abuse that, ever. In all these years with all the clients, nobody's ever, you know, like called me incessantly. They, I have to remind them, make sure next time if that happens, you call. Don't wait till Wednesday. Don't, you know. Right, but I, I, I so, was going to say um, most of the crisis that I'm aware of usually happen at when the police knock on the door at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, uh, is, that, is that okay to text you at 1 o'clock in the morning? You know what? No one has. I've been. I've had people text me up until like midnight. Okay. But honestly, if someone did and it was a really important issue like that, I would. I would be okay with it. It doesn't happen all the time. Right. Um, you know. But if something serious happened, I mean, if somebody calls me up to tell me they can't sleep, I, I'd prefer that not to happen. Yeah. You know, tell me the next day. But um, yeah, I mean, if it's if it's something really. Because you know you've been in that situation, I've been in that situation, when you just need somebody to reach out to. And um, Yep, that's correct. So, Um, I and as I said, no one's ever taken advantage of it, so I guess it's the right thing to do. 
<laughs> so, I, and here's another last couple more things. We're almost out of time. Uh, see, okay. I told you that hour would go fast. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so somebody has overdosed once, twice, survived both times. And, and I'm yeah. sure most of your clients know to have Narcan in the house or available right. quickly. Um, right. But let's say you want to get, the, they, they should be sectioned because you just can't yeah. control them. What is your opinion of the Massachusetts, um, you know, I don't want to call it a prison, but the holding pens for people who are sectioned? Right. So I haven't personally had experience with it. And as I mentioned to you, a lot of my clients, because the work we do is on Zoom and on the phone, many of my clients are outside of Massachusetts. They're all over the country oh, yeah. and even in the world. There's a, if a couple from Europe um, that I work with. But... Um, so my firsthand experience with it is not as extensive. I've seen it work, but for those who I do know that have done it, um, it's worked well in some cases that they go before a judge and the judge give you know orders them to treatment or you know whatever the the necessary um, situation is. But I've also had other people who have brought their loved one in to be sectioned and the judge feels that they're, you know, they're capable of, and, and doesn't section them. So, they're not, so they, didn't, they don't even get there. So that, that's right. So now, right. now you've got animosity. between. I mean, the, as far as holding pens and all of that, honestly, when somebody is doing, doing opioids of any kind, especially if they could contain fentanyl, I'd rather lock them in a closet. I mean, I am really rigid about that. If I found out that my somebody that I loved was snorting fentanyl now, I I would have the police come and take them. There are harm to themselves. There are harm to 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 others. Problem is when somebody is that bad off, sometimes they run and they can't be found, yeah. and you know it's very tragic. Because the, then the families are worried and they, they don't hear from them and they don't know if they're alive or they're under a bridge or what. Um, you know, and, and the whole sectioning thing has to be coordinated. So it's really difficult. And that's why I tend to favor 911. I, I just. Yeah, because they'll be at the hospital and they'll be in a room. Yeah. And they'll yeah, be they'll be kept be there safe. until there's a decision to make what they're going to do with them. Right, right. The big the big thing that that um, you know, is very few people have that kind of health insurance. I mean the the most of these insurance companies they offer two weeks to a thirty day max kind of I thing. I know that's a and, whole uh, nother issue for sure. It really, really is. Yeah, and you just can't pay. Ten thousand or fifteen thousand no, dollars a week no. or whatever it is, you know. So it's like a, and that's a that's a real problem because, um, um, you know, uh, you, you just, it's tough, you know. And I know somebody who cashed in their four hundred one k and spent sixty thousand dollars to send their kid, and they were only there three months, and I, I was like, well, it's not long enough, you know, to really, you you. My um, my boys had a small inheritance from their grandfather. It all went to treatment. I mean, it was, like, designed for college, and we didn't use it for one of them barely went to college because of this issue. Um, but 
that's what it was used for. And you were fortunate and that I, that you had that there, you know that it was right, right. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm there. They're now they're kicking themselves. Boy, that would have been nice for you know a little down payment. Yeah. <laughs> what, what but about, hey, you're alive. <laughs> um, the one thing I want to ask you: What about the psychological load on you? Uh, it's tough when you have one kid and you're working with people. So now you've got twelve or fourteen people yeah, out there. Um, you know what? I always thought, and I remember thinking about that and being asked that question when I started doing this. Isn't this going to give you, like, the PTSD of going back to and remembering? And I I can't explain it, but I get so much pleasure from it that it never puts me down. I could be in a not-so-great mood, and then I talk to a client for an hour, and it's like I have adrenaline. I get because it. I know that I said one or two things that made a difference for that hour. Well, that's wanna, a, you know that, about, that, that's definitely good. I mean, it's you know it's worth it. You know you've helped, and yeah. there's a big feeling. Yeah. And of, I can't, you know what? And I have seen some great outcomes, but I've also had clients that you know their kids are going on for years and years and years with it, but they're better. As a as as a parent, they're doing better. Yeah, it's just they're like, learning to cope. Yeah, it's just like the flight you attendant know? says: put the uh, got to put so the oxygen on you first yeah. before you help the child yeah. that's sitting next to you. Because if you can't breathe, you're right. not going to be any good for them. You know. Yeah. So, and I. I mean, it's just it the amount of stress and and harm that it causes someone to go through this. As a parent, you know, loving someone who is addicted, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it really affects us tremendously. Uh, it, it's a drain. It's a drain on everybody around it. And so, yeah. Um, Lisa, I want to really thank you for your time. Um, oh, Tony, I'm happy to I really, help really, in any way I can. I'm, I'm glad you called me. Okay, I appreciate that very much. And I hope somebody sure. contacts you. I hope you get some... Great. So you can help some more people out there and get that adrenaline going. Happy to do so. so and, okay. uh, for those of you, I've known Lisa for about five years now, four years, and uh, everything she's telling you comes deep from the heart. And if you need some help, she's the one that can help you. Believe me, it doesn't matter. Everything's on Zoom. So it doesn't matter if you're listening in Kentucky or Florida. You yeah, know. I mean, I, we do. If people aren't comfortable to Zoom, I do phone calls, whatever. Yeah, whatever it's, works. Um, whatever works for the client, you're you're willing to do it. So absolutely. Well, stay in touch, and I thank absolutely. you very much. I feel everyone's pain. I know, I know, and I'm thrilled that you're doing this show, Tony. It's great. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. Alrighty. Bye bye now. Happy New Year. Yes, same to you. Bye. Bye.